Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, uh, consider backing us on Patreon or you can also find us on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little help goes a long way in keeping this show alive. And also a massive thanks to those of you who have already contributed to help the podcast. Your kindness and support is hugely appreciated. Now let's dive into today's episodes. In our last episode, we began our discussion on the cardinal directions of the magical circle by looking at the direction of the east and some of its magical symbolism. And in today's episode, I wanted to continue this theme with an examination of the direction of the west and some of the symbolism, stories and meanings of it from a magical perspective. Now, I know some people might be thinking, why is he doing the west rather than the south, which would be in the usual order? Um, And the reason is, it's autumn and it's close to Halloween, so I thought it would be nice to cover the West instead. The cardinal direction of the West, with its ties to the setting sun, has long captivated the imagination of humans. Through the ages, different civilizations, religions and esoteric traditions have ascribed deep spiritual and symbolic meanings to this direction. The word West originates from the old High German, Vesta, hinting at its connection with the evening. Also, we have the Hebrew word for West, which is Malav, uh, derived from the word Erev, which means evening, which also kind of underscores this link to transitions, the ebb of daylight and the onset of night. Magically speaking, this association often positions the West as the symbolic realm of endings, reflections, and also the bridge between the known and the unknown. And this idea of being a realm between the known and the unknown also fits nicely with the time of year that we are in now, which is autumn in the UK, that is. This is the time when you know, the light of the summer has reached its culmination and fruition and it begins to recede, marking that sunset of the year and the onset of autumn. And as the day's energy and light begins to ebb, the west ushers in a period of reflection and deep introspection, akin to the tranquil moment when water on a lake stands still, transforming into a reflective mirror. The author Ina Custers van Bergen describes the time of autumn as follows. Autumn is a moist season. Mushrooms start to grow. The leaves of the trees colour. And in the evening the sunset bathes the entire landscape in a surreal light. The air is misty. And nature prepares itself for the coming winter. Animals go underground and life gradually withdraws. Spring was a season of expansion. 
Now we are dealing with tides of contraction. The west is associated with the element of water and with the beginning of the journey of the sun through the underworld. When the shadows lengthen in the light of the setting sun, the twilight descends and a gateway between the worlds is opened. It is the most magical time of the year. The veils between the dimensions are thin and it is now very easy to contact other realities. And I thought that quote was quite nice, particularly as, as given the time of the year. And as we can see, the time this podcast is coming out, the, the thinning of the veils is very relevant um, as we come up to the festival of Halloween next week. Another important aspect of the cardinal direction of the West is it's associated with water, obviously, at least in the majority of magical systems. As I mentioned in the previous episodes, uh, the attribution of the different elements to specific directions is something that is kind of debated and uh, some magical traditions actually do use completely different um, attributions or they would follow like uh, an astrological uh, correspondence where you would have rather than air in the east you'd have fire in the east uh, you'd have earth in the south you would have air in the west and then <coughs> water in the north um, but uh, I, I tend to follow the normal one which is air for east fire for south water for west and earth for north and if we think about the elemental association of water with the west there's lots of different symbolism in there Water in its fluidity encapsulates emotions, intuition, and also the vast realm of the, of the subconscious. And just as the West can be seen as acting as a portal to the mysteries beyond our tangible world, water can also be seen as a bridge between our conscious and subconscious. Also, it's worth thinking about how all life comes from water but water by its very nature is also destructive and can bring about death. Thus we also have this idea of death and rebirth in the symbolism of the West. The association with the element of water is also about the West being seen as a realm of reflection, introspection, meditation and deep self-examination. The art of meditation, which is a key aspect of magical or, or even spiritual training you know prompts us to look inward allowing our minds to find a silence a stillness to conjure images from the deepest recesses of the self and this practice really underscores the west's emblematic significance as a bastion of reflection as the sun sets signaling the world to prepare for sleep or for rest we too are encouraged to consider our actions and also seek enlightenment or seek wisdom and understanding. And it's also within this introspection, this mirrored self-reflection that we begin to find pathways to spiritual growth, personal knowledge and evolution. And the association with water is also why many traditions bestow upon the West a, a feminine essence which may perhaps be connected to the nurturing qualities of water and intuition and the connection to the inner planes often linked with the feminine aspect and 
the moon as well. In different cultures, the West had had quite similar connotations as well. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, the Egyptian duat or the underworld is intimately linked with the West. It was believed that Ra, the sun god, journeyed through the duat each night facing numerous challenges only to emerge reborn in the east. The west was also a territory of duality. It represented both the dangers of the afterlife and the promise of rebirth and we can see the importance of of the west in numerous examples in the Egyptian texts. For example the Egyptian Book of the Dead Spell 17 speaks about the descent of Ra into the underworld um, which is really a metaphor for the journey of the deceased. We also see this in the idea of, in the, in the pyramid te- texts, which were uh, parchments found in the pyramids of the Old Kingdom. And they are among some of the oldest religious texts in ancient Egypt. And in these texts, the, the West is often symbolises the realm of the dead. So, for example, utterance 366 from the pyramid texts invokes the king's journey to the west after death and goes as follows O king you are this great star the companion of Orion who traverses the sky with Orion who navigates the netherworld with Osiris you ascend from the east of the sky being renewed at your due season and rejuvenated at your time the sky has been born with you Orion The ancient Egyptians were not the only ones who believed that the West was important from a symbolic perspective. Um, In ancient Greece, the West was also the home of the Hesperides, who were the nymphs of the evening and the golden light of sunset, and were known as the daughters of the evening or the nymphs of the West. And They lived in a paradisical garden where the golden apples of immortality were kept. And Hesiod describes them as follows. Again, although she slept with none of the gods, dark night gave birth to blame and sad distress, and the Hesperides who out beyond the famous stream of Oceanus tend the lovely golden apples and their trees. That's from Hesiod, Theogony. Also, there's a nice quote from Euripides, Hippotius, who described their dwelling place in the west as... I would win my way to the coast, apple-bearing Hesperian coast, of which the minstrels sing, where the Lord Oceanus denies the voyager, further sailing and fixes the solemn limit of Uranus, which giant Atlas upholds. There the streams flow with ambrosia by Zeus's bed of love and holy Gaia, the giver of life, yield to the gods' rich blessedness. Also in Greek mythology, the sun god Helios drives his chariot across the sky from the east to the west, sinking into the ocean at the day's end. And the realm of Hades, the underworld where the souls of the departed went, was often envisioned as being in the west. Also the Isles of the Blessed, um, where heroes and virtuous souls were meant to reside in the afterlife were said to be located in the western part of the world and this idea of the west being a place of the departed was also followed into Roman mythology 
with the, the Romans seeing the direction of the West as being the dominion of the setting sun and metaphorically the realm of the departed. And you have phrases like to go west encapsulating this idea of passing into the next world or passing into a different dimension. Also in Celtic mythology and folklore, um, they also have lots of different imagery uh, of the West, often associating it with the entrance to the mystical underworld, a realm of magic and mystery. And the West's significance is closely tied to the setting sun as the Celts saw the sun descent into the horizon as symbolic of the transition between the mortal world and the realm of the divine. And the folklorist and member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn uh, once remarked, the world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. Which I think is a nice quote that kind of echoes this Celtic perception of the supernatural in everyday life. Also in the kind of Celtic and um, British tradition, you have, and, and Irish as well, you have um, mythical islands. So you've got the mythical Turnanog and also Hebrazil, which were frequent settings in Celtic tales. And these were places where time flowed differently, where magical beings and heroes reside. And there's an ancient proverb that says, Beyond the ninth wave lies the realm of enchantment. And this proverb, I think, kind of captures this Celtic belief in a magical land separated from the mortal realm by a vast sea and only reachable by those chosen or blessed. These were magical islands that very few would see or even be able to reach, um, but occasionally you might get a glimpse of it for over the waves before it disappeared. We also get enchanted realms like Avalon in the Arthurian mythos as well, which was often depicted as a mist-shrouded isle in the west and was meant to be the legendary final resting place of King Arthur. And this obviously underscores the Celtic reverence for the west as this place of healing, of magic and eternal rest. Looking at the Christian tradition as well, it also... Um, they also shared some of the ideas and symbolism associated with the West. However, Christianity often aligns the West with uh, kind of more like humanity's fallen state. So in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, uh, we get the following quote. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life and this obviously you know suggesting humanity's departure to the west away from the direct presence of god and obviously the sacred garden of eden so it's almost like this fall of man into the west although you could argue that that's almost like a, a fall of man but it's also kind of going into the west to seek knowledge to bring it back into the east so that's another way you could look at that the theme of orientation in christianity is also quite prominent so um you know christian if you look at christian burial practices they often emphasize this east-west dichotomy and it's traditional for the deceased in many christian cemeteries to be interred with their heads to the west and their feet to the east and this is so that upon the resurrection at the second coming of christ 
the resurrected would rise up to face the east. And this practice is also underscored by the biblical reference, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's Matthew 24, 27. By this tradition, the West also once again becomes synonymous with mortality and to a certain extent human's temporal existence, whereas the East is a representative hope of resurrection, of light and the return of Christ. So as you can see, there's quite a lot of differences between how the uh, Christian interpretation of the East and the West and some of the other um, traditions like the ancient Egyptians and the Greeks were. Well, that's a little bit of background, but what about it from a magical perspective, which is what we're kind of primarily focused on on this podcast. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the direction of the West is normally associated with the element of water. So from a magical perspective, in many traditions, this is symbolised by the magical weapon of the cup or chalice being a symbol of emotion intuition the feminine creative principle and also the sphere of yesod on the kabbalistic tree of life it's a symbol of abundance and fertility and can be used in ceremony for both you know libations but also to stand empty signifying the opening up of the self to the abundance pouring forth from the spiritual plane Um, And it's not just the exterior of the chalice that's significant. You know, they'll have different kind of symbols and carvings on it. It's also what is inside the chalice that's important. And obviously water associated with the West is often the liquid that is within the chalice. It's cleansing, it's purifying and it's evocative of our own bodies from the point of view of the chalice as we are essentially sort of born from water and return to water and that's beautifully captured in the phrase the lustral water of the loud resounding sea the cup doesn't just represent our inner knowing and creativity but it also can be seen to signify love and As William Gray elucidated, this is the kind of emotional state that's closest to celestial heaven on earth. It's like the highest frequency that human beings can can actually connect with, um, that feeling of love, that expansive love. And it's a love that's so vast and so profound that it's almost incomprehensible to the human mind. Um, And the author P.L. Wilson um, described in his book Angels the following. Above all, the grail is a symbol of symbolism itself. It represents the very potency by which a symbol symbolises. So the cup symbolises our capacity to love the abundance of it but also the very essence of that symbolism and you can kind of almost think about it as this sea from which all symbols emerge and from where, and to which all symbols return and the great magician 
William Gray also writes a really good perspective on the symbol of the chalice in his excellent book Temple Magic, which I recommend to anyone who hasn't read it, where he emphasises that while our existence is both sorrow and joy, both emotions are derived from the same cup of experience. The cup is more than a mere object, it's an embodiment of unity, of love and spirituality and it's essential for human existence. And you also get that in the Masonic um, symbolism with the black and white tiles as well. Again, it's going back to this kind of duality. And William Gray wrote, Human existence may be a strange mixture of sorrow and joy, both drunk from the same cup of experience, but it has to be drained to the very dregs as I drink. In common with everyone, I share it with, At least I am not alone, and this is the cup of companionship. With those others I would most willingly share it with. I need love more than anything life has to offer, and without it I would be empty, desolate, and altogether abandoned. This is the cup that brings the blessing of blood brotherhood, which saves me from a solitary, sad, and miserable state of isolation in my own identity alone. While I can keep contact with the concept, I shall never feel neglected or forsaken by the power of providence. It is true that the cup can be a bitter one upon occasion, but it always brings experience that will enlighten me and bring me good in some eventual way. I may not like this, but I have to learn whatever lessons it is sent to teach me in a spiritual shape for the improvement of my soul and the enlargement of my spirit. Most of all, I value the inestimable blessing of the blood relationship. This symbol shows that I should have with God and mortals, sharing the communion of a common spiritual consciousness amongst us all. This is the most precious thing that I possess in my whole life upon this planet. It is all that makes life bearable as an embodied being. Apart from this, what hope is there for our humanity? This cup alone is everything that offers any confidence in life or holds out hopes of betterment beyond our bodies into spiritual states of an Elysian existence. I am therefore holding the most precious, valuable, prized and vital symbol of eventual perfection may it bless me always and that's a quote from uh, William Gray Temple Magic which I recommend if anyone hasn't read it the cup's dual nature also can't be ignored so just as the grail holds the power to heal it also possesses the potential to destroy and it can mete out to each what they deserve so we hear this in the story of Taliesin which describes this dual function to each according to his need, this and his powers determined what he heard. The cup's capacity is also vital, so its contents reflects our own thresholds. How much joy, how much sorrow, love or pain can we bear? And in many narratives, the, the chalice, especially the Holy Grail, which is probably the most famous one, has also often been portrayed as an object of pursuit. So the adventurer or the knight 
or the heroine would go off into the wilderness to seek the grail and bring back unparalleled wisdom and love or it could offer death as well and this journey and the t- and the chalice itself really encourages us to kind of unearth that boundless sea of love and wisdom but also bravery within ourselves and guide us towards a much more profound and deeper knowledge of ourselves and the world around us. Moving on to the the Kabbalah as well and I wanted to talk a bit about the kind of Kabbalistic symbolism Um, and in the Kabbalistic tradition the West also has quite a profound significance is often seen as a uh, again as a realm of introspection the setting sun etc the conclusion of the day this direction is also associated with the sphere of yesod um, which serves as the foundation or the treasure house of images and is also the nexus between the spiritual and the material realms so when we're based in malkut uh, in the temple of malkut um, with all kind of elements and then we're looking up the tree towards the moon which is symbolized by yesod but also symbolized by the astral plane and that's really the first step up the 32nd path the 32nd path up to yesod you're kind of entering that realm of trance but also the realm of the astral plane where the the magical images um representing kind of higher spiritual forces are beginning to, to work and it's also the ma- magical triad of Netzachod and Yesod all connecting together at that point so if you think about that from that point of view as well um, this is this is very important from the point of view of the power kind of emanating from the west and going into the east in the Jewish tradition as well the west was connected to the Shekinah or the divine presence and historically both the tabernacle and the uh, temple of Jerusalem um, were orientated such as their entrances faced east but the worshippers would walk westward towards the holy of holies which was the dwelling place of the Shekinah and this movement from east to west really symbolizes a spiritual journey so it's moving ever closer to the divine and just as the Kabbalah views the west through the lens of really yesod being this connecting point between the higher and the lower realms um, jewish tradition also views the west as being the direction where one would pr- could connect and approach with the divine presence and obviously the cyclical nature of the sun rising in the east setting in the west is not only a marker of the passage of time but it also represents spiritual progression from understanding from unity from the mundane world to the sacred and spiritual and from a magical perspective this idea of the west as being a nexus between the spiritual and the material realms also fits well with the magical officer that normally occupies a lodge in the west in the western mystery tradition Traditionally, this would often be a woman um, in in many kind of older practices. You know, for example, uh, Dion Fortune, etc. While a man would occupy the East, um, and the person in the West would often be the Oracle or the seer. 
And traditionally, they'd be the most psychic of the group, and their responsibility would really be bringing that other world into the temple. They form a gateway into the inner world, and they are a channel for the magical energy that is directed and then moulded through the circle by the magus or the high priest or priestess that stands in the east. And this exchange of power between the east and the west is extremely important aspect of magical practice in the western mystery tradition and it was particularly important in the system um, used by Dion Fortune where she would often have a man acting as a magus in the eastern quarter and then there would be a woman in the western quarter and the woman would actually charge up the temple using her own inner power which would then be transferred to the magus and distributed round the lodge the magus is in the east was positive on the material plane but negative on the inner realms which is why the power was thought to flow down through the gates of the west times have changed obviously and it should be noted that you know um many of the views dion fortune had regarding the sexes male female etc are different now however the principle of polarity that she discusses is the same and is a really powerful part of the symbolism of the east-west polarity but also obviously the earth and the south or north-south polarity in a magical working. As Dion Fortune wrote, because manifestation takes place through pairs of opposites, the principle of polarity is implicit not only in the macrocosm but also in the microcosm. By understanding it and knowing how to avail ourselves of the potentialities it affords, we can raise our natural powers far above their normal. We can use our environment as a thrust block. We can look for potent Hokama force in books, in our racial tradition, in our religion, in our friends and associates. From all these we can receive the stimulus that fecundates us and makes us creative. Emotionally and dynamically, we make our environment play hokma to our bina. Equally, we can play hokma to its bina upon the subtle planes. Polarity is not fixed, but is relative. That which is more forceful than ourselves is positive towards us and renders us negative towards itself. That which is less forceful than we are in any given aspect is negative towards us and we can assume the positive role towards it. This fluidic, ever-fluctuating, subtle polarity is one of the most important points in the practical workings. If we understand it and avail ourselves of it, we can do some very remarkable things and put our lives and our relations with our environment on an altogether different basis. So she's talking about the diff- the, uh, this magical use of polarity so it's positive and negative positive and negative um, one's positive on the material plane one is po- um, one is negative on the material plane one is positive on the inner planes so the power is being drawn through from the inner planes to the person who is negative on the on the mundane plane who is then reflecting that back out uh, in a positive way so it kind of goes up and down the chain. And if you read the Cosmic Doctrine by um, Dion Fortune, she goes into this concept in, in much more detail with regards to the different levels and how how this, this kind of works. 
but it's very interesting the uh, the idea of polarity um, from that perspective, and I will be doing an episode on that in the future. Um, but we also see this in in this Masonic tradition as well, um, where the West kind of holds a, a place of prominence, and also emphasise this aspect of um, the the of kind of the office of the West, but to it being a kind of walker between the worlds. The West is where the senior warden sits in in masonry, which is representative of the setting sun, um, positioned in the West, which kind of signifies the balance between work, symbolised by the worshipful master in the East, and then rest, the closing of one's daily toils in the West. The East is obviously in masonry as tradition associated with enlightenment, with knowledge, and the rising sun, and this is where the master of the lodge would sit. And it's symbolic of new beginnings, birth, resurrection, and knowledge. The West, which sits exactly opposite, is symbolic of the setting sun. That's where the senior warden sits. It's the end of the day or the end of one's earthly life. And it's also a reminder of the transience of life and the inevitability of death. As the sun sets in the West, it represents a cycle of life and the balance of beginnings and endings and on a deeper kind of esoteric level the senior warden's role you know can be seen as this kind of walker between the worlds because he almost acts as a mediator between the material and the spiritual worlds he stands at the threshold reminding the the brethren of the spiritual dimensions of their work and the deeper meanings of their earthly existence and the balance between the Magus in the East and the Senior Ward in the West also operates on the idea of this magical polarity which we're talking about in relation to uh, Dion Fortune. So, and I'm not sure whether she was involved with masonry, but um, I'm, I'm sure that um, you know people that she worked with and, and studied with, etc., would have been Freemasons. So there's a good chance that some of this um, Masonic symbolism is what she kind of brought into her magical system and practice. And the direction of the West also has obviously deep connections with water. And when when we're talking about water, we also need to obviously mention the elementals. And the elemental for the West is the Undines, who were water spirits or or elementals and and really these are the custodians of that particular element and they help to kind of almost like do the building blocks of that element they really encapsulate this fluidity of water as well so it's kind of ever-evolving essence and also intuition Um, and they're governed by the king Nixa who is the elemental king of this quarter and you can see the undines flowing through rivers, streams, and obviously even within our bodies as well. They're perpetually mingling and merging with their kinds, completely fluid, completely flowing. The elemental king, as I mentioned, is King Nixa, who he bears the title of key holder of the doors of the heavenly flood. And he really embodied this divine energy that kind of gives rise to rivers and springs and he's also traditionally said to stand sentinel at the four rivers of purification reigning over the 
life-giving fluids that ascend and nourish existence. And Gareth Knight describes King Nixa as follows. In the west is the water king, Nixa, presiding over the Undines. He can be pictured permeated with moisture and currents of foam swinging round his feet and pouring from his aura. There's not much written about the elemental kings uh, for any of the quarters, um, but they are very kind of powerful symbols and images to, you know, certainly meditate on and, and work with, um, because in practice they do really have a, a very strong energy. Um, so even though we don't know much and there's not a huge amount written about them, uh, if you do start working with them in an inner way you will find that um, they do kind of open up and provide more knowledge. On the um, Archangel of the Western Quarter, this is Archangel Gabriel. And we did an episode on Gabriel, so I'm not going to go into massive amounts of detail on, on this particular Archangel. But he is, you know, obviously one of the most important ones, was known as Strong One of God. And is really intricately associated with the element of water. He was known as the messenger of the gods. Uh, traditional depictions often showcase the archangel with a trumpet through which he heralds the birth of the redeemer. Obviously in the Bible we get the story of the archangel Gabriel visiting um, the Virgin Mary to tell her about, tell her that she's pregnant with, with Jesus, which must have been a bit of a bit of a shock for her at the time. Um, but yeah, Gabriel is renowned as the guardian of the West amongst the archangels and in his service to the divine he, he kind of represents all these themes like communication, revelation and understanding and obviously this underscores this idea of the West as being this symbolic realm of um, intuition and, and you know spiritual awareness. David Goddard in his Magic of the Angels book um, writes... I wanted to quote this quote from him which talks about the Archangel Gabriel. The Archangel of the Moon is Gabriel. His name means God is mighty. Gabriel is the prince of the foundation and ruler of the zodiacal sign of Cancer, the crab. The Archangel Gabriel is the bringer of the creative word, giver of vision, ruler of the angelic host of the cherubim and regent of the element of water. In sacred art, Gabriel is often portrayed holding a staff bearing lilies, a flower that is sacred to the moon. This staff is the rod of power and like the flowering staves of Aaron and Saint Joseph of Arimathea, it symbolises that the etheric tides are the regulators of life that the annual resurgence of nature, the miracle of spring, is caused by these hidden tides. Gabriel, like Haniel, sometimes appears in female form, indicating the nurturing aspect of the moon's power. When he appears in masculine form, it denotes the initiating aspect of the same force. Among the ancient pantheons, there were moon gods as well as moon goddesses. Gabrielle can be visualised in the western quarter, with eyes as green as a storm-tossed sea, aura wings of violet shot with silver, and all around him, 
the sound of many waters. That's a, a really beautiful description of the Archangel Gabriel from uh, David Goddard's book. But as we can see from that particular quote, he really kind of emphasised this idea, this idea of um, oscillating between the nurturing and the initiating forces. And it really kind of reminds us of that fluidity of the divine energy in the West. The final um, spiritual figure that I wanted to talk about in, in relation to the West is, is the winged eagle from the four holy living creatures. And while many traditions might not incorporate these into their ceremonies or the symbolism, numerous Western mystery tradition practices recognize them as being emblematic of the profound and potent symbolism of the elemental quarters. And this symbolism can really amplify the energy within the quarter. Um, and these are spiritual beings that are you know, described in both the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. And they're often associated with the specific evangelists, but their significance really extends beyond those associations. The winged eagle is referred to as the Lord of the Mind and represents the West in the realm of the holy living creatures, obviously symbolizing the highest, most spiritual aspect of the element of water. Its essence is really resonating with water's consciousness and kind of elevating through all the different levels like the Archangel, obviously Elemental King and the Elemental itself. So this can be seen as like the peak, almost like a triangle if you think about the, the, the Four holy living creatures as being at the top of the triangle. Furthermore, while the eagle has associations with John the Evangelist and the higher facets of Scorpio, its attributes like obviously acute vision and majestic flight align quite powerfully with this idea of clarity and spiritual insight, being able to see between the realms. So the West can see in this realm, but also into the inner realms, and they can see in between. So you can see that quite closely related um, with regards to the, the eagle. And um, Ina Custers van Bergen also provides a detailed description of the eagle in her book, um, which goes as follows. He represents the element of water, and he behaves on the level of consciousness as water penetrating everything, soaking everything, omnipresent as spirit, because he penetrates creation as spirit. After diversification of unity, this penetrating consciousness is an individualizing force. The eagle is the source of individual consciousness and of personality. The eagle is the highest form of the third fixed sign of the zodiac, Scorpio. In the eagle we see beautifully expressed how every layer of conscious spirit gives access to the next one by means of transformation. Scorpio changes into the snake. The snake transforms into the eagle. In this way the road is open for the human being who walks the path of return whereupon all the instinctive features are transformed 
and transcended into a higher form by means of the power of the mind. The four holy living creatures are forces that work upon individual beings and at the same time they are the impetus behind the evolution of the planet itself. They are cosmic forces. That's all we've got time for today. Um, but in the next episode, we will be um, talking a bit about the esoteric symbolism of the the other quarters. So next week will be the south, and then we'll do the north. I really hope that this episode has helped people and provided with with some you know fresh perspectives on the, some of the symbolism of the western quarter and how you can kind of work with it. As mentioned, the energies that emanate from water and the West, you know, really beckon us into a dimension of contemplation, meditation and rebirth arising from those profound waters of the West. And it's also a poignant reminder of the cyclical nature of life and the vast mysteries that lie just beyond our comprehension. And I wanted to finish today's episode with a poem by Tolkien called Journey's End. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing, or there may be tis cloudless nights and swaying branches bare, the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. <laughs>